Hey, Asin Chatton, my friends, and welcome to the I Give a Damn podcast, made possible by Florescine Media, the same company behind ODs on Facebook. My guest today is none other than Dr. Amanda Leggy. Amanda is not only an expert in age-related macular degeneration, but also in what I would call patient interaction and rapport, where getting to know her patients on an authentic level has not only improved her overall patient numbers and business growth, but has accessed the opportunity to leverage patient education and therefore improve patient outcomes. We also discuss optometry's heightened role in management of macular degeneration, including her experience with dark adaptometry, as well as nutraceuticals and lifestyle changes and how it impacts our retinal health. We also touch on her experience with what I consider to be a young optometrist's dream, where she not only got to be an extern as a student in an eye clinic, but then hired on by that clinic as an associate and eventually asked to become partner in that same clinic. I think Dr. Leggy has a lot to teach us as well as just being an amazing person to speak with. So please hit that subscribe and follow buttons. And here we go with Dr. Amanda Leggy. Well, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Leggy. Amanda, you, um, your what was your last name like your your maiden name? my maiden name was griskevich which was g-r-y-s-k-e-w-i-c-z wow so i cut it in half <laughs> i imagine how many how many if you were you practicing with that name before no or? so we got married in between like college and optometry school okay so i simplified it i know a lot of female optometrists that got into the business and then didn't know what to do with their name. So I, I simplified my life. <laughs> I know I've ran into the fact that my last name is Alan mm -hmm. and some people confuse my last name and being that it also can be a first name. So I get that confusion a lot, but I can't yeah. imagine uh, <laughs> how, how patients would be like a uh, Dr. Yeah. G. My mom was a, yeah, my mom was a teacher and she went by Mrs. G. There we go. <laughs> so that would have been it. Now, Amanda, you have a really kind of a cool story. Um, that I think a lot of, especially younger doctors, maybe you, in a way, you've kind of lived a dream in that you went from being an an intern as an optometry student, right? Mm -hmm. yep. As an, in, an extern intern, and eventually got hired on, and now you co-own it, right? You're a partner within the practice, right? So can you can you give us just for our viewers, our listeners? your background, how that became to be. So I think some of it was by design and some of it was just serendipitous, where the design part of it was I knew where I wanted to practice because mm -hmm. I didn't want to go too far from family. So instead of choosing externship sites at, you know, all these cool exotic locations, I decided to like make a network around where I wanted to be. Oh, smart. So that's, a little strategic that way. And I knew that because I wanted to practice within each area, I better be at my best game because I want at least recommendations from these people, you know, mm -hmm. as my, my baseline for things. And if right. something better happens, you know, that's great. So that was the design aspect of it. And then, you know, the serendipitous part about it is just finding um, this practice through the internship site. And they made us go and interview in person because they're not too far from the school. So, so, you actually, so before you even mm -hmm. got to be an extern, you had to go interview yeah. to be an extern. Mm -hmm. Okay, I haven't heard of that. So. Yeah, so that was... Um, it was a lot of Dr. Corbin is um, the main owner, owner of the practice for many years now. And that was his um, requirement for it. Now he does it by Zoom instead because we're BC or sure. after BC with COVID. But um, I thought that was really good because I got to know his personality a little bit, what the flow of the clinic was. And it's like, okay, this seems like a really good place. So I think it's hard for students to even know what internship sites to choose. You know, they're just this is your list, this is who I participate with, and like, good luck. You know, right. we had the option to read previous interns, um, like reviews, we'll say, of the practices, which helped a little bit, but everybody has different personalities, so it doesn't always match. You know, people write negative things about awesome practices and awesome things about easy practices. Right, it depends um, on what the student's expecting and what yeah. they really want out of it, too. Correct, so it's hard to choose that. So that's, I think, where the serendipitous part came in, that I was fortunate to find a practice that matched 
my style and my personality and really allowed me to, to flourish with that part of it. What what would you say is kind of your style? If you if just for again our viewers, listeners, where are you practicing? And kind of tell us about, about your practice and, and your mode of practice. Yeah, so I practice at Wyoming Optometric Center, which is near Reading, Pennsylvania. Um, I've been there working now officially for ten years, but I've been there I guess twelve years with the intern. And what drives me is just having education with patients. I love taking the time and getting to know who they are, what their occupation is, because um, I will check people's like low, low light vision for reading glasses, say if they're like a waitress or something else, because they probably don't have the best light in their bifocals as they're doing things. So you think about this stuff and you get to know people. And I love asking questions of people and just learning about various jobs that I didn't even know existed. And it was, the practice is set up very... I don't want to say casual, but it's very just friendly and get to know each other, take the time to educate people. We have a lot of the new technology, so mm-hmm. um, really helps the way that I talk to patients and practice because of that too. And I think it's really smart that you bring that up, that like what your patient's life is like, mm-hmm. because I think in school we're so drilled into our head, like the proper testing distance, the proper lighting, the mm-hmm. uh, all of the ideal testing world like especially if you're doing a research study or something Mm -hmm. like that but that's just not how people use their eyesight their vision and i'm gonna have to think about incorporating being a little bit more i love asking interns that that when they come out and they're you know reporting about whatever refraction they have i'm like oh so what do they do most of them say oh i don't know yeah they they pick it up over time you know over the months that they're there but i'm like it's important because of a b and c you know depending on their needs and not just we're so focused on treating the eyes the vision system one thing that i i've learned over time is that if I spend more time asking my patient about themselves, mm-hmm. about what they do, about what they care about, or what their passions are, I like to go beyond just like, what do you do for a living? I like mm-hmm. to be like, so what do you like to do? What are your passions? Like, what are you looking forward to? What yeah. do you What do you do with your children? Like, mm-hmm. what do you? Um, getting to know them on that level, I have a better bond with them, and I ha- honestly think they're more like not just they don't just see me as a value of because of my work mm-hmm. of my expertise, but they they want to come see Dr. Allen yeah. again. They look forward to spending Perception time is everything, right? Right. And being genuine, people understand that. You can't you can't fake that kind of personality. And I think it's 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 a little challenging because the way our education I think with all medicine, there's a challenge because we are trained to think about the disease. We're trained mm-hmm. to think about the eyeball, not necessarily the person. Yeah. And that's that was a big um I'm gonna say learning curve, I think as becoming a doctor was the emotional aspect of all of that, where we learn what disease is, we learn how to manage it, we learn what to do about it. Mm-hmm. I didn't have one course about how to handle the emotional aspect of patients. <laughs> you know, tell somebody they have macular degeneration for the first time and you can see their eyes just glaze over and I can give the best education of my life and get an Oscar for it, but I know that they stopped listening to me because they're thinking, oh my gosh, I know so-and-so, they're getting injections into the eye, I'm going to lose my vision totally. And so having that personal rapport with somebody is so important to walk them through the process that you are about to begin your journey on together. And that's a, that's definitely something that I've carried forward too. I, when I was at the VA, I remember... I did a low vision exam with a guy where he just, we spent most of the time him just crying and telling me his like PTSD war stories. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he had been, this particular gentleman had had vision loss, severe vision loss for many years at this point. And if anything, he almost just needed a therapist or a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and that I got to be that there for him. But that's a memory I'll just never yeah. forget. And, and optometrists, you know, I always say we're, we're the primary care doctors, right, in the eye care world. And you go to your same primary care doctor probably for many years. Many of us stick with the same one for a long time. And you get a, a rapport with them. And optometry is even more interesting because most of us practice cradle to grave, right? right. So you see husbands, <laughs> you see wives, you see grandparents and, and parents and kids. And sometimes you have four generations that you're able to follow and you know all these people by name. So one day, you know, the wife comes in and says, my husband passed away. And it's just, it's, it's sad for you, it's sad for them. Um, but again, that bond is just so um, intimate and important and trustworthy in your doctor. Yeah. I think some of the experiences I've had is you get to, especially if you're at a clinic a few years, at least probably three to five, then you start to see 
return patients. Mm-hmm. You start to know them a little bit more. You remember their family names. The uh, I've had uh, like a, 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 a new family and eventually like the mom came in one day and I could tell something was off. I could tell she was emotional or she was very, she wasn't the same. And I'm like, are you okay? Like, what's going on? I it just I, like I don't, I didn't like I don't mean to pry, but then she ended up kind of breaking down that they were, they were not, they were having marital issues, mm-hmm. and she confided that in, with me. And again, it just ultimately, it's just amazing those relationships yeah. that you do build. Now, with your your practice, you're more of a medically based practice. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you guys have a lot of different technology, like you mentioned. Uh, are you doing? What are you, do you have a subspecialty? Do you have a focus? What's your, what's yeah, your, so we like? all kind of have a focus, which is, um, nice. We're a, an all optometry practice. We all do primary care, but we have like our own niche sort of specialty mm-hmm. or just interest. So somebody does dry eye, we have scleral contact lens fitters. Um, somebody, you know, like glaucoma, we do keratoconus ma- uh, management and such now too. Um, and then I do most of the retina work. Nice. And that's kind of, that's honestly kind of like how our clinic runs as mm-hmm. well. It's the, a good inner office referral. Yeah, you're right. You're and just constantly. Like, it's okay to not know everything. Mm-hmm. It's okay. Like one of my, I would love to get more OD to OD referrals. I think you know, that is. It's, it's okay to not know everything. That is a challenge, I think, in our entire profession, right? I think um, some some practices, or it just seems like that isn't as, as happening as frequent. And I understand, like, or we're worried you're going to lose that patient mm-hmm. if you also happen to sell glasses and contacts, that sort of thing. But I think it's also just showing some level of respect at the same time. Mm-hmm. But uh, with being more on the retina side of things, uh, I know you also you write frequently. You have something published. I mm-hmm. mean, how long have you been doing that? And what really got you got you even interested and keep going in mm-hmm. in, in publishing articles and, and writing so i think again it was design and serendipity at the same time sure. where in uh, i went to salis university i graduated in 2012 and you know through through my third and then beginning fourth year thinking about residency i was just sort of tapped out with school like mentally i was like residency just it's just not for me and what Salus did offer, though, were advanced studies programs at mm. that point. So they had various options. I chose retina for two reasons. One, I always thought it was just fascinating with all the stuff we can see in the back of the eye and systemically, neurologically. Um, but two, it was also kind of my area that I was least confident in. <laughs> and I think a lot of us are because you have to have the really good techniques to get the visuals that you need in the first place. Like especially in the peripheral retina. Yeah. Or- and then you have to have, like, be a good diagnostician because so many things overlap, so many things look the same. Um, and there's a true art form to the education aspect of it, especially when people come in, perfect 2020 vision, and you're finding an issue that they weren't expecting, which is mm-hmm. sort of a weird eye care phenomenon. It is. I always try to tell them, like, you don't have pain receptors mm-hmm. in the back exactly. of the eye. Like, you, you're not going to feel pain. If you did, you would be screaming on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's, that is a really, I love how you noticed that that was a weakness of yours. Mm-hmm. It's almost scary. Cause I think in anterior segment, that's how I felt in going into residency. I was like, I remember ANSEG <laughs> classes. I, I did well in those classes, but when I saw a cornea with edema mm-hmm. and there's something going on, there's a uveitis of some kind, I like locked up. I was like, there's so many variables and thankfully, in my residency experience, I got some push in that direction. And I was forced to start reading articles a lot more. And I had better understanding for it. And even more so after residency, just seeing more volume of everything mm-hmm. that comes in off the street. Uh, and now it's like what I kind of love. Yeah. As, as much as I, do, I love and respect retina as well, um, I think there's absolutely a beauty with retina, of mm-hmm. diabetes. Um, I agree. When I when I did the advanced everything. studies program, one of one of my favorite professors there, um, he's like, "Well, why aren't you doing ant seg? Because there's nothing in the retina that we can treat." So he's like, "You're just doing retina because it's intellectually sexy." I was like, "Maybe." That's but also, good. I yeah, like it was, that. I love that. I'm taking that to the grave. Yeah, you might have to make a shirt that says <laughs> that. I'm sure there's. I'm sure there's a like the the retina society would love something. Yeah, like that. exactly. 
Hey, I just want to take a quick pause and give a shout out to Florescene Media. Not only do they make this podcast possible, but they are the company behind the social media community, ODs on Facebook, which is the longest running optometric community with the most active discussions amongst over 46,000 eye care professionals. So if you're not already a member, don't miss out and join the discussion over on ODs on Facebook. Otherwise, let's get back to it. But I said, I we don't have to treat things, but there's a lot of stuff that we can manage with the retina. Mm-hmm. And macular degeneration, dry macular degeneration is one of those areas that I feel very strongly that optometry should own that, like we have owned dry mm-hmm. eye disease. You know, we don't refer to ophthalmology anymore for dry eye. You're yeah. seeking out a dry eye expert, which are generally optometrists. And I really think that's where dry macular degeneration should be because no, maybe we're not treating it, but we are managing it very well to hopefully that they never have vision loss. Or if they do, like we are on top of it, they are educated, they know what to do, and then we can get the retina specialist um, as soon as possible. And you know what's great about that is my retina specialists love me because you send them patients with good vision when they just convert to wet and they look like a hero. That's true. You know what's not fun about being a retina (laughs) specialist is injecting people's eyes over and over again to stabilize vision and not really make it significantly better, especially the ones that are caught very late. So I think it's honestly at this point, hopefully macular degeneration will change in the future. But at this point, a retina specialist job is not that fun (laughs) because it's neuro tissue, right? So they... The surgeries that they can do, repairing macular holes and, um, you know, removing epiretinal membranes, like such delicate, amazing procedures. But to the patient, they just went through this huge situation that they're mostly scared of. People are terrified about their eyes Mm -hmm. and they don't have perfect vision afterwards. And to us, it's a great outcome. We're like, this is amazing. Like, this is what the papers say. Yeah, you went from 2080 or 2100 back to like 2040. Yeah, but they're not happy. Because, yeah, yeah exactly. Because <laughs> their quality of life is still dramatically affected once they walk out of your office. And they mentally think the surgeon messed up. And it's like, no, yeah. they are. No, this is an amazing like, outcome. Yeah. He did an amazing job. But it's just um, the quality of life that is different and is hard to um, mentally grasp mm-hmm. with. And it's interesting because you mentioned how like dry AMD is something that we really should own. And I know mm-hmm. we, we manage it. We buy you know, a lot close follow-up maybe a reds depending on the stage um and then now at least with the advent of some geographic atrophy treatments you know that helps us kind of early okay we can get them hopefully same thing to the retina specialist so they can maybe get that injection but what i'm interested to hear your protocol because not only are you passionate about knowing uh, just practicing but also educating your patients i'm curious it's like how do you like to talk to your patient? If I was your patient mm-hmm. and I, you were just diagnosing me with early dry AMD signs, like what, what would you explain? So I'll tell you how I make my job easier too. There all right. Go. So say you're a new patient, all right? I don't, I don't know you. You come in and I find Drusen. I don't, unless it's very obvious or super advanced, I never tell somebody that visit that they have macular degeneration. Mm-hmm. But I say, I have findings that are concerning. Usually take a picture. A picture is worth a thousand words, right? right? And you can physically show them what you are visibly seeing in the retina and why you're concerned. Um, I'm a huge fan of dark adaptation because it's 90% sensitive and specific for macular degeneration right. if they're in that age group and you rule out, you know, inherited retina disease in that first. So can I ask yeah, first go. with, uh, so you guys are probably using what the adapt DX uh, with that, are you screening for patients before the exam? Are you, once you ad- identify it, you're like, okay, we need to have you back to do this test? Like, how are you? At this point, doing? we're doing it when we identify any drusen at all. Okay. So one um, pinpoint, like teeny tiny drusen, like anything that Within you find Within the macula to, or even if you saw one a little even bit Even a outside. peripheral. Yeah. So it's, it's, you know, really well covered for any kind of drusen. But the fact that I have a 90% accurate diagnosis of macular degeneration to tell them when they come back for their follow-up and I do their OCT and I do their dark adaptation and I can tell them with 90% confidence you do or do not right now have macular degeneration. And we don't get to do that because it's while there's, you know, scientific measurements and how the ARED study graded macular degeneration, most of us grade it by feel, right? (laughs) Like there are standards, like you only need one large size drusen to be intermediate AMD. But most of us don't think about that. And you're like, oh, there's just one Drews. 
no big deal. Right. Or then there's pigment um, changes like that. Correct. That is a whole compounding factor of that too. Yeah. But most of us diagnose by feel. And then you're left with giving patients some ambiguity that mm. there's some age related yeah. changes. I'm sort of concerned about it, but through a cloudy cataract view yeah. and all that, and because there's not a lot to do about it. What do we say about it? You know, I think going back, we talked about the office earlier because I'm from like up Scranton. I love when, um, there was a quote from Michael Scott. He's like, well, if I was your doctor, like I wouldn't tell you if you had cancer, right? What bad news. <laughs> what bad news. Yeah. <laughs> and it is bad news. And that's why I go back to the emotional aspect of patient care, because you come across a lot of that when you're mm. talking about a visually potentially debilitating condition often. Right. We want patients to like us. We, mm -hmm. I think that's, that's the hard line between being a doctor and a friend, mm -hmm. um, and sometimes a business owner, right? You, you want people to like, you want people to come back, um, how, how you can't help a patient if they don't come back. Right. Uh, but at the same time they need to, to know what's going on and to properly educate them. Yeah. So because it's such a huge conversation and I'll go through that conversation with you. I have, I show them the Drews in the day of their new patient appointment, bring them back for the OCT dark adaptation and just what I term an AMD consult. So mm -hmm. now we're allowed to bill by time per the Medicare guidelines. So I sure. take advantage of that, that I don't use a slit lamp. I don't do anything except review their new um, studies that we just did and have the full on conversation top to bottom about macular degeneration. Yeah. It takes a long time too. There's so time. much. There's it's so much. So I, I give myself that time and grant myself that gift because I cannot do that conversation several times a day on the fly. Right. Not to do it justice. I applaud that. Unless you want to make YouTube videos of, of you doing that explanation. Yes, I can just show it all then, the time. And then just have like that, that in a reel, yeah. <laughs> uh, with, um, I'm curious because of the Drusen. Mm -hmm. uh, now, you talk to different professionals. We know from the results of the AREDS 1 and AREDS 2 studies, we know what the standard, okay, once they hit intermediate, then we can start prescribing AREDS 2 um, vitamins to patients. But I know a lot of doctors will feel that, hey, even if you have one single drusen, you're not quite intermediate, it's enough to be concerned. Um, they at least discuss the option if they want to take, whether it be AREDS2 or some, mm -hmm. some other form of, of supplement, vision supplement, because there's 30 brands out there. Right. What are your thoughts, feelings, rationales for that? So I think um, we need to take a step back from AREDS and look at the forest through the trees because mm -hmm. AREDS was designed in 1990. <laughs> you know, the original um, concept. And AREDS2 didn't change the formula much except for replacing beta carotene, which we knew was causing uh, increased incidence of lung cancer. So we had to change it. We didn't really have a choice is how, you know, AREDS2 partially came to be. And the other part was in 1990 when it was designed, lutein wasn't commercially available. Mm. They couldn't use it. See, so they had to that. use some carotenoid similar, which was beta carotene. But beta carotene is not found in the retina. So it was close and it's did true. sort of the same thing, but not exactly the same thing. So what I love to take a step back from AREDS and really think about it is what AREDS gifted to us was understanding how nutrition affects our whole health, our whole body health, starting with the eye. Yeah. Because what other professional, MD, DO professionals for standard of care recommend a nutraceutical? I think there's some, you know, with pregnant women, there's folic acid they have yep. to be concerned about. Vitamin D is now a little bit more focusing. Uh, unless what if you're like treating yeah, unless the disease process. Unless they're running a, a panel, a vitamin mm -hmm. panel, they're, they're not prescribing multivitamins. If anything, most will say, no, it's multivitamins or vitamins is a BS industry. Yeah. So, yeah, I, so I, I always raise my hand about that <laughs> when I hear other doctors saying like, don't take vitamins. I'm like, unless. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like. Yeah. Uh, and if you take so a step back from it and really compare like AREDS 1 and AREDS 2, the cool thing about it is that AREDS 2 worked better than mm -hmm. AREDS 1. So it wasn't just less lung cancer and we did a swap. By like 5%. It right. works a little bit better. And as they compared, you know, groups who had high intake mm -hmm. dietary lutein compared to low dietary lutein, it was like a 26% difference um, that those with the low intake were more likely to have worse forms mm -hmm. of macular degeneration. So if you get into some of the the full scope of AREDS, it's really telling us that nutraceuticals, specifically antioxidants, A, C, E, zinc, um, I'm sorry, C, E, zinc, copper to offset it, um, are antioxidants. Mm -hmm. 
and the carotenoids, whether it was beta carotene first or lutein and zeaxanthin. Um, so if you take a step back further, in the general American diet, even though we don't have a healthy diet, and we can talk about that a whole other <laughs> conversation. But even though I'd we don't to. have, that's, that's a passion yeah. of mine. I love thinking about it or discussing it. So. Yeah, because even if we Americans don't have a healthy diet, what we get generally and we're not nutrient deficient is in is C, E, and zinc. Like we get that very generally from our diet, and mm-hmm. most people in America are not deficient in those things. Sure. You know, unless you're elderly, have poor absorption, maybe after bariatric surgery to pay attention to a little bit, but. General population-wise, that's not the concern. But what we definitely don't get enough of, right, is the lutein, the zeaxanthin, um, that we just consume so little plants, fruits and vegetables, that it's uh, not good. So I'm in one of the camps that I I do believe in lutein and supplementation early because I think at least as of 2023, AMD is is a preventative medicine disease. You can't reverse it. But if we find it early and talk about, you know, even if you don't do nutraceuticals, just the education part of it that, you know, you can slow it down by lifestyle changes. And I I tell people, like, not joining a gym. I'm like, I'm asking you to walk and have movement during your day. Like, don't sit on the couch all day. Find a hobby. Find something to do that keeps you energized. Um, Diet is really important. And while, you know, the Mediterranean diet has over and over again shown to help Reduce risk of AMD, reduce risk of dementia, reduce risk of cognitive decline, diabetes, diabetes, that it um, also is just if you eat less processed foods and more stuff direct from Mother Nature is exactly how I explain my diet. I'm like, I don't subscribe to a specific one. If you want, my best recommendation is Mediterranean. Yeah, the the best thing is what works for you. Yeah. But it's like if you're looking at a purely nutritional or what's been published in the research as being less risk for all these different conditions it's like sticking to something more on those guidelines yeah because you're not going to give a nutraceutical and magically cure a mcdonald's dinner every night like it has to be both um and i have had people come back and they're like you know since you told me that instead of eating chips at night i've been getting peppers and i'm you know cutting those up and slicing better like they didn't change their whole diet they didn't change their whole lifestyle Mm -hmm. but they made a healthier choice because of the education I gave them. Um, so I'm also not in the boat of like, oh, you're not following my recommendations, so that's just not okay. <laughs> um, like they're making steps and they're making healthier choices because I educated them about it. Mm-hmm. And that all comes back to AREDS, that if we didn't have those nutritional supplement studies, we wouldn't be talking about this so much. And I think where optometry and ophthalmology at this point are sort of diverging is that we're becoming more and more preventative care medicine absolutely and they're becoming so much more surgically specialized as all these different techniques come out um that they're veering the opposite direction a little bit and treating much more allopathically yeah and and certainly i think there's if anyway that that teamwork between the two specialties mm-hmm. that's i think there's a beauty in yeah that so important because of how uniquely specialized a, a lot of ophthalmology is with those surgical techniques Mm -hmm. i mean there's a lot of skill there's a lot of knowledge that's involved in that and to which i don't have the patience (laughs) or the dexterity to do some of the amazing things that they do for me i just don't have the stomach for it i uh (laughs) i I, i'm i have steady hands i can when it comes to the cornea i'm great i can Mm -hmm. debride corneas and do all sorts of great stuff with it but as soon as I see blood and, and something like that, even watching, <laughs> if I sit in a retina lecture and they're showing uh, any sort of a procedure where there's a lot of blood coming mm-hmm. in and out, I'd get wheezy. And I'm just like, yeah. I'd pass out in the OR. Mm-hmm. I would not be a great, yeah. <laughs> great, great surgeon. In and I much more prefer the in-office and talking back and forth and education aspect. Like that just fits my personality more. Right. Especially with the patient connection. Mm-hmm. I think that's great. The... Uh, the idea of like supplementation, omega-3s, mm-hmm. uh, I think that that whole idea that, especially now with, I kind of talked about this um, in a different a different interview, a different episode about the new geographic atrophy mm-hmm. injection and how that works on the complement system. It's like, wow, we have so much more knowledge of how inflammatory cascades play a role in advancement of macular degeneration. Mm-hmm. So it's I think it's a hopeful time to have macular degeneration. It's never a good time, but it's a hopeful time for mm-hmm. it. Um, that there are ways that we can catch it very early and do this education or intervention and preserve good vision for a lifetime. There's ways that we can catch conversion to wet, you know, so early now that patients are 2025 or better at the time you start injections. And most of the studies show that whatever the visual acuity is, 
at the time they convert to wet is about what their visual acuity is one and two years after. So the importance of catching that as early as possible cannot be understated, which is why the education aspect of it is so important to know with your patients. Because I've had patients that look um, not that concerning to me who did convert and other patients that I'm like just waiting any day for it to happen. And it's mm -hmm. been, you know, six years that you just, you can't assume who's going to and who's not because while there are statistics and analysis, I think macular degeneration is a very individualized disease and process. Right. And there's, I, I feel like in even reading into textbooks and research, it seems like there, there could be like little subcategories even amongst mm -hmm. like for us, it's easy, dry, wet, uh, or, you know, different stages of advanced intermediate, yeah. but it's, then you have polypoidal and you've got all these other yeah. little things that are kind of mirror uh, mimickers almost mm -hmm. with, uh, being that again, communicating to your patients. Uh, I heard a story and correct me if I'm wrong, but that you joined like an AMD support group online and mm -hmm. you just asked people like what, how did they first hear about AMD? Yeah, so when I joined um, was October of um, last year, October of 21. So it's been a, a, a little over a year now. Um, I joined and I asked very honestly, I, I introduced myself as, as an optometrist. And I said, what do you wish your eye doctor told you mm. at the time that you were diagnosed, like that day? And the responses were really interesting. It wasn't... Um, necessarily the the way that the doctor said it it's the lack of information we give them so there are some um people that went to see a retina specialist and i'm sure in the scheme of their day dry okay, amd early amd is like cool like you're great you know I'm, yeah. I'm gonna go inject 50 more people behind you um so it's like okay you have macular degeneration here's a pamphlet most every retina specialist has them leave with some areds recommendation right no matter what the study says with intermediate most of them do and, you know, the um, people on the Facebook group would say, you know, my doctor handed me a pamphlet and I was devastated and I sat in his waiting room and cried for an hour before I could drive myself home. Gosh. Or I, the one uh, woman said, I wish that my doctor told me about stopping smoking because I was going through a really hard time in my life and I actually picked up smoking after I was diagnosed with macular degeneration, but I didn't know the association with it. Um, you know, I wish that my doctor was honest with me, was over and over again, not... I wish they didn't say, oh, you just have some age-related changes. I wish they said it out loud and what it is and how we do about it. So it came down to they wanted education. With um, how, what have you found success with providing this education? Mm -hmm. Like, do you think, uh, do you guys have pamphlets? Do you, yeah. like you said, you sit down and you have I wrote discussion. a 16-page booklet I hand to every one of my patients. Whoa, is it like so, loaded with studies? It or goes what? through, no, it goes through just front to back what I want to cover with them. So it goes through the difference of dry versus wet. It goes through how we differentiate early, intermediate, and severe. And I tell the people on that Facebook group, I'm like what you need to know about your macular degeneration is, um, is it wet or dry? Because some people don't even know. Sure. Um, and it's easy for us to know, oh, are you getting injections? No. Okay. You have the dry form, but patients don't know the difference between it. So you need to know if you have wet or dry, you need to know if you have it in one or both eyes and what stage that you are in. Hmm. Um, and that's a question that you should like pointedly ask your doctor about. And then with follow-up visits, the appropriate question is, do you see any progression, um, to follow it over time? So I will go through dry versus wet, all of the lifestyle changes. And I do have like little blips with the, um, the studies in it, I don't have like a, a, uh, what's it called? Not a bibliography. <laughs> Just a, yeah. a references. references. I don't like, I don't have references. Cited. Yeah. I don't have references in it, but it, um, it does more, yeah, go through the, the statistics way, and yeah. yeah. Um, it go, my favorite, this is my favorite explanation of macular degeneration. And I tell every single person about it. I tell them that macular degeneration is a disease process of the transport system between the healthy retina on top and the vasculature that supplies it underneath. Sure. And there's a membrane that's there. And it's really important because it helps with the transfer of nutrients in, waste products out, and making sure that toxic stuff doesn't cross over as much as possible. But in macular degeneration, that gets impaired where what we first see are these yellow deposits that we call drusen. But what that means is if you have macular degeneration, it's not just that spot here and that spot here that's dysfunctional. It's the entirety of the macula. 
And that's why dark adaptation works because it's not isolated drusen that causes a delayed dark adaptation. It's the fact that there is this cholesterol and debris wash underneath the retina that is visualized in electron biomicroscopy, um, but we don't take people's eyes out and dissect them in our offices. Right. So we know that it's there scientifically, but we can't visualize it on our photos or OCT even yet. But what dark adaptation is really checking is that ability of you to transition from bright to dark, like going from um, a bright sunny day and walking into a movie theater. And when your mom said carrots were good for your eyes, she was right for this exact reason. <laughs> because vitamin A is extremely important in that process. But vitamin A is also one of the larger molecules that has to push through our bloodstream and into that membrane. So while I see these drusen buildup as waste accumulations not getting pushed out of the retina, what's more concerning is that that membrane is preventing nutrition from the bloodstream into the retina. Mm -hmm. So you have two options to potentially lose vision over time. Either you can stay in the dry form, which essentially is just the retina not getting the nutrition it needs. Of course, we know it's more complicated with that, like with the inflammatory cascade, but it's not getting the nutrition it needs and it just sort of dies off and it atrophies and it's not able to continue living. Um, and the second way you can lose vision much more rapidly and that I'm concerned about in the short term is converting to the wet kind. And that occurs when new blood vessels grow underneath the retina and try to push through. And while in theory, right, it sounds good because you're going to get a new pathway of nutrients, of oxygen to the retina, the problem with new blood vessels is it's not the same architecture. Yeah. So they just leak and they bleed and they cause bubbles in the retina and that's what causes the distortion. Mm -hmm. And if we don't treat it with injections, it is only going to get worse. I like to mentioned to my patients how if they could picture weeds or like tree roots invading into the foundation of their home mm -hmm. like it ultimately just destroys the architecture of what how the retina functions and you're not going to see yeah. <laughs> and so that's some people just that visual uh, visualization of seeing mm -hmm. seeing something grow in it's like that's that's what's happening agreed and no matter what we're treating with whether it's AREDS, whether it's another nutraceutical, whether it's anti-VEGF, whether it's the new GA drug that's out, all of it is just meant to slow it down. None of it's curable. None of it's completely reversible. Um, I've found if you catch the wet conversion early that the injections are not a life sentence that I have had patients discontinue, you know, and, and we watch them very carefully. But that's why I, I truly believe that macular degeneration in the year of 2023 is a disease of prevention in sure. the first place. Do you recommend, um, let's say you just have family members of somebody with AMD and maybe you're not seeing Drusen or anything mm -hmm. like that. Do you recommend these lifestyle changes to every patient? Do you recommend eating fish versus omega-3s? Mm -hmm. Do you Yeah, we're moving in that direction. So um, we're about to invest in a carotenoid scanner, mm -hmm. which I'm excited about. The because, transdermal one or yeah, through the MPOD measurements? Mm -hmm. So I think that that is going to open an entire other avenue of conversation of wellness to our mm -hmm. patients. Because especially at first, if they're not on nutraceuticals or they choose to manage or change their dietary lifestyle, whether AMD, diabetic retinopathy, whatever, that first snapshot of what your carotenoids levels are, it's indirectly telling you about the whole health of your body. Because if you're not consuming enough plants, you know, fruits and vegetables, you're not getting the nutrition that your entire body needs to really, you know, sustain itself for the mm -hmm. long term. So it's a really good indicator of that. You know, once you start supplementing with carotenoids, it, it throws that off a little bit because you're only supplementing the carotenoids that sure. come up. But that first snapshot and then discussion of I can tell how you're eating and I can tell that it's not the best. Right. And by the way, did you know that healthy eating reduces your risk of macular degeneration? It reduces your risk of cognitive decline. It reduces your risk of dementia. Um, and those are huge factors that most people aren't aware of. And I think the big challenge is there's a huge, and part of it's our medical, our, our, our medical infrastructure is rotten. And mm -hmm. our, our culture, especially here in the United States, I think is, is also, um, very off the rails, especially mm -hmm. in terms of diet. Yeah. Uh, people, you'll tell them that. You're like, wow, your scores are really low. Mm -hmm. And they're like, but I eat healthy. You know, I, I eat Brussels sprouts covered in butter yeah. once a week. You mm -hmm. know, to, to anybody, like that's, people think just because they eat peas, they're green, that's, yeah. that's healthy. And it's like, that's not, like the Mediterranean diet you mentioned, mm -hmm. people eat a meat lover's pizza, a whole meat lover's pizza yeah. from like Domino's or something. And 
they'll say, well, that's a Mediter- that's Italian. That's a Mediterranean mm, diet. Ah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, really. But life is a marathon, <laughs> right? It's it's not it's not the short term decisions you make. It's the patterns of behavior you have over a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, so you either have that drive to make it happen, or you don't. And again, I don't judge people for not doing that if they don't want to. I am there to help them and be their doctor and tell them the hard news, but always try to keep it hopeful. Right, and also just be looking at the science and mm-hmm. discussing that with them. It's like, look, I'm not here to make a judgment on you. I'm mm-hmm. just here to tell you what what my findings are, how I can help you, and this is what the science says. Yep, <laughs> exactly. Um, so with uh, continuing with that booklet, so I'll go through and like highlight exactly what's pertinent to them. You know, mm-hmm. the lifestyle changes for everybody. The um, the if they're dry or wet, exactly what stage I'm I'm putting them in. It goes through the various tests and why we use them, from photography to what autofluorescence does, how it works, mm-hmm. um, OCT, dark adaptation, why it works. Um, it talks about the d- various treatment options, so you know anti-VEGF, and then I have to add now for some of the GA drugs. Yeah, and then have I, to, you have to update. Everything. I have to update it. I know, which is a good thing. Um, and then I do have a whole section just talking about nutraceuticals because. If you've ever just wandered through a pharmacy to the eye vitamin aisle, like you'll drown. Yeah, there's 12, <laughs> at least 12 brands just at, at any local pharmacy. And then you go right. online and there's 3 million of them. Right. And you don't know what's in them. And most, some people are aware of, most are not aware that the supplement industry is not FDA regulated, yeah. which means, you know, they can advertise whatever they want, but it doesn't mean that it's absorbed into your systemic system appropriately. It doesn't mean it reaches the retina appropriately. Um, so I do have a whole page explaining why I want them to take a recommended name brand supplement, whatever that may be, because I think there are many good brands out there. Um, but having them on a specific, um, recommendation avoids them spending money that may not do anything, right? If you're going to make this investment, make a good investment and what I know is going to work, Mm -hmm. um, on a scientific basis and, um, avoids the confusion and the discount shopping that you can get the very, very inexpensive vitamins at Sam's Club or what, what have you, which sounds great for the price, but why are you putting something in your body if I can't tell you that it's definitely doing what it's advertised to do? So I do go kind of deep into that with um, uh, the handout as well. And then it talks about, I'm a big fan of the 4C home device. Um, oh, sure. Again, catching what very early patients like it a lot because the Amsler grid is only so good. And that, that uh, describe that yeah. a little bit better for... Um of how that works and how you guys utilize it. So it's um, a home monitoring system for um, conversion to wet macular degeneration. So it's not something that we utilize in the office. It's something that we write like a prescription for. Mm-hmm. And then Notal Vision does all of the rest in the background stuff. So they will authorize insurance. Most with Medicare and a supplement pay nothing per month for it. It is approved by insurance. Um, others have a copay, which ranges from $20 to maybe $70 a month, um, depending or if you're commercial insurance that they don't cover it. But it tests each eye individually at home for the presence of metamorphopsia, and it communicates with me if there's a change. So if it's detecting a change in metamorphopsia, I will get an email, I get a phone call, I get a fax, like they make sure that you know. So then I reach out to the patient and have them come in for you know an emergency type visit, sure. and we'll check. And it checks for metamorphopsia, right? So you have to use your brain a little bit because I've had one change because it was their geographic atrophy enlarged a little bit, which did change their metamorphopsia. And I had one, his epiretinal membrane changed a little bit, which Mm -hmm. again, so then I communicate. Nothing like dry eye or... I haven't seen it for that yet. No anterior segment I haven't seen it for that yet because it's not... It doesn't alert me from one abnormal value. I'll say it it does a cluster of them. And if it knows it's a true change, Mm. it will tell me. So maybe dry eye might affect it on the short term, but it's not enough for an alert, I'll say, that I have seen. So that's that's great. I think uh, that's a, I've heard of it. I've known of it. I've never had a chance to utilize Mm -hmm. that myself, but I can see that. Wow, that that has a pretty, and if it is that accessible, it's like, well, it actually has a pretty good role. Mm -hmm. So that's pretty cool that you guys have that as an option. uh, a, a role in their own healthcare, right? Because I'm, I'm only a team member with them. I can't do everything for them. Yeah. I can't cook them dinner, <laughs> make them take their supplements or what have you every night. But I can be a team member and I can be their cheerleader and I can help them in the right direction. I really love that attitude around, mm. around it. And I try to encourage that same sort of thing. I want to help my patients become an advocate for their own mm-hmm. health, right? And a big yeah. part of that, going back to education, 
now, before we kind of wrap this up, I just, uh, out of my own curiosity, because you kind of mentioned uh, you guys are looking into the transdermal carotenoid mm-hmm. measurements. What is your opinion on macular pigment, optical density, MPOD measurements? Mm-hmm. Uh, have you had experience with any of that? Um, what, what are your Not thoughts? in my own office, but I think just scientifically, MPOD is still a subjective test, so mm-hmm. you'll get some variability. Um, whereas the transdermal one is truly objective and is a little bit more reliable. Mm. Your skin cells also change every 30 days. So it's, um, a cool way to monitor it over time and actually see if the supplements are working or if they choose dietary habits, how is your diet this time? Even, you know, diabetics that you're not recommending carotenoids for, Mm. like, and you talk to them about nutrition, you can utilize it for that. I mean, like, oh, you had a really good, you know, three, six months, whatever it was like, good for you. Keep it up. Diabetes is even more in in the world of nutrition. And I think unfortunately there's a lot of there's a lot of gurus and confusion out there mm-hmm. but uh, that that's i that's what i think is the true beauty well i'll tell you a story about nutrition that opened my eyes so yeah. my dad a few years ago went to the, his primary care doctor and he calls me and he's like hey so i'm borderline for hypertension and uh, my sugars are kind of borderline so the doctor gave me three months i'm gonna get my diet in order and we're gonna recheck and then see if we have to start medicine okay my dad is an intelligent guy and so three months goes by and he calls me and he's like so my values are worse I said, what? I'm like, well, what are you eating? He's like, well, I changed sodas to Gatorade, which is salt. And I changed- <laughs> Salt and sugar. Salt and sugar. And, and I changed um, to eating, instead of snacking, I've been eating a lot more fruit, which is sugar. Yeah. And well, in theory, I totally get it, right? Sugar or soda to Gatorade sounds like a healthy switch. And going from, you know, snacking on chips or whatever to fruit sounds like a healthy switch. And I guess nutritionally, it, it sort of is. But yeah, yeah, yeah for, for like you just don't and, know about yeah. diet, like exactly what foods do to you when you consume them. Right. And I think that's that's uh, something that our, all, all forms of medicine are starting to kind of wake up to. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Um, but again, we're, we're fighting against uh, a fire hose of other information. Advertisers are very mm-hmm. much the opposite direction. Right, you're hearing just eat more of this, eat more of mm-hmm. that, drink more of this, and it's just constantly, yeah. and that's our culture. Like I, I grew up in the Midwest, so it's like our culture is steak and potatoes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like that's that's what it is. The seven Minnesota seven layer salad, whatever that is, where you have a layer of like mayonnaise <laughs> on top of like funyuns. There's, there's yeah. shows that have made fun of that, um, which is not a real thing that in in my knowledge at all. Okay, but that's that's kind of just this junk food world that mm-hmm. we live in like we've lost and we're that. all so busy right it's so easy when it's you're when you're yeah. two working parents and you have kids who are in you know all kinds of sports activities it's like well we either eat at four o'clock which is fast food because nobody's home before that mm-hmm. or we're eating at nine o'clock at night you know between all the activities and things so it's so much easier to microwave a dinner or make the mac and cheese or what have you you know for the whole family not just the kids the whole family and um it, it is it's embedded into our culture both in how we're how we learn about food and how we um are advertised about what our intake is well this has been an amazing conversation and I feel like we could probably continue talking because we were just talking about basically the retina the whole time, which yeah. I think, uh, honestly, the way you've set up and the, how you practice with that sort of model where you come in and you're basically laying a foundation and you're a coach and advocate for them. Yeah, like, we build that's... on that every time, right? Then they, they like know how to read their OCTs. They're like, oh, that looks, that Drew's looks a little bit bigger than last time, et cetera. And again, they're involved in their own yeah. care. I do a lot of inherited retina disease too, since we have, um, you know, through Foundation Fighting Blindness, we now have free mm. genetic testing that's, that's available. That's huge. Is that just for huge. you or is that something no, that No, that everybody... is a countrywide USA um, program. It's through Foundation Fighting Blindness. It's uh-huh. called My Retina Tracker. Okay. So you can sign up and, and get it anytime. But since the advent of that, it's so easy to take care of those patients in my own office because I would send them out to, you know, Shea Eye Hospital, Will's Eye Hospital, solely because they would do the genetic testing. I'm like, well, hopefully they put you in a portal that if something, some, a study comes up in the future, they'll be able to pull you. Sure. But the awesome thing about this is that then um, Foundation Fighting Blindness stores that information and HIPAA compliant, not with demographics, mm-hmm. but for all of this new research that is upcoming to pull these people and reach out to them and, and actually give them a way to have access if they want to, to clinical trials. Because ultimately that's that's a huge pinnacle of the future of, of medical mm-hmm. treatments huge is deal. looking at how can we f- genetically fix mm-hmm. things, which is a little scary. It's like getting yeah. out into that 
uh, sci-fi world. I think it's I, the whole philosophy and the morality of it too is it's just an interesting concept and it's something we're all gonna have to grapple with in the next couple of years right. but going back to the education point i have a family with um best disease and the one girl is eight and mm. i looked at her at one point in one of our first or second exams with each other i said do you really understand what best disease is we keep talking about this but do you get it she's like i don't know there's like a bubble in my retina so i went through like how it works i'm like your vision is really good right now and she had the vitelliform lesion i'm like but i'm concerned as it gets reabsorbed and could sort of explain that part and the dad stopped me on the way out to the front desk he goes thank you for involving her in her own medical care because mm -hmm. I feel like every time we take my kid to most doctors, the doctor spends all the time talking to me and not to her. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing was like outcome was twofold was one, um, her teacher just for fun because she was in what's like second grade would use like rainbow lights in her classroom and she couldn't see when the rainbow lights were on even though her visual acuity was fine. I was like, go tell your teacher about it. Educate her about best disease, and she did. And the teacher understood it a little bit. And while they use the rainbow lights for fun and play, she doesn't use them for education anymore. Mm -hmm. And then the dad came to me a few months later, and he said, you know, her talking about her best disease was such a huge deal for me because I never talked about it. I didn't want to tell people that I had a visual disability. I didn't want it to affect my job status. Um, I didn't want to affect my schooling. So I more or less have kept it a secret my whole life to to acquaintances and who I'm um, around a lot. But I've been talking about it more and I'm educating the public on what it is to live with some kind of inherited or visually degenerative disease process. So it's really cool how you can impact people with education. Right. And that causes, a, especially for a young girl like that, that has a ripple effect of how she will see mm -hmm. Not just you, but other doctors yeah. as she grows up in the sure. future. So her older sister, I gave her all of her autofluorescence and OCT. She did a whole presentation to her class about what oh, best disease is and so hers cool. and stuff. Really cool. I was so proud of her. I, I, I have a good friend from college who I only found out a few years ago, best disease runs in her family. Mm. <laughs> and I had to unfortunately give her that diagnosis yeah. as well. And it it's, I think it's, it for me, I feel it because I do know her so well. Mm -hmm. And I know she's an artist, like mm -hmm. that's her trade, yeah. that's her passion. And just knowing that she Right for you, made... because you could just say, if you didn't know her, you could say, oh, you have best disease and educate them. And you know, even though I do very good education, I have to move on with my day. I have other patients that they have a next problem that mm -hmm. we need to solve. That person that leaves your office, their life is different from that point moving forward mm -hmm. every day. Um, and they will go home and say, Dr. Allen told me so-and-so, Dr. Allen told me so-and-so, you know, and spreading it out to friends, family, and, and educating them about it. But your name is going to come up a lot in their lifetime, <laughs> hopefully in a good way. Right, hopefully, right? hopefully, in, a hopefully in a good way. way. Because it will come up either way. Well, Amanda, this has been an amazing conversation. I really appreciate all that you're doing in our profession. You clearly yeah, have a you. passion. You give mm -hmm. a damn about optometry and what you do. So Thank you again for being part of the show, uh, being on the podcast. And I, I, I can't wait to run into you again. And maybe we'll awesome. have you on again as, a, as another guest. In the yeah, future. sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. It's awesome.